These are confusing questions that I've had over coffee, and what we're doing tonight is second part on kind of what is faith. Um, how do you have it? I've had this conversation, you know, so many times over the years. I work through this, these ideas all the time personally. How do I know if I have it? Right? I like the things I'm hearing. Uh, maybe that's where you find yourself. What does it mean to believe it? Um, and in some ways, kind of belief is this thing that's easier to see than it is to describe. Um, putting it into words is kind of hard. How do you how do you go from believing one thing to believing another thing um, in either direction? Um, and maybe you've thought like maybe you've had this thought or heard it that like religious belief is kind of this this thing where reason takes you up to a point and kind of explaining life and then past that point there's no reason and there's kind of two kinds of people there are the people who stand at the edge of reason and say well so i'll just stay in this realm and then there's people of faith who kind of step off to that they like they they set reason aside they've used it as much as it's useful and then they kind of go beyond it and access this different tool called faith and that's not even close to what biblical faith is um and and i would even say that uh i would say that's foolish uh, kind of thinking, but we've all thought that, and I think that, and you know, I've given those answers um, even recently because sometimes we just find ourselves at a loss for words and at a loss for even understanding. But what I want to read is, and we're going to read some passages from Hebrews 11, which is uh, one of the big chapters on faith. So I'm going to read these couple of verses, and then we'll talk about them and see if we kind of get, can't get some more ideas about what what it means to believe. So this is the writer of Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So this is skipping further down in Hebrews 11. What happens in the next verses is he catalogs Old Testament figures and said, you know, Abraham did this by faith. Uh, Moses did this by faith. And he goes through all this kind of stuff. And then he says, these all died in faith. So these people who lived and walked and obeyed by faith, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then the conclusion statement, after he then goes on to list more Old Testament figures who live by faith, the conclusion is the first couple of verses of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the Old Testament saints, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the stories of people who have followed you faithfully, um, even into mysteries. Uh, and even when they didn't receive what was promised, but looked at it from afar. And I pray that it would be an encouragement to us, dear God. And I pray that you would give us faith uh, and you would answer our questions. So be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, 
So we're going to jump right in, and we're just going to go through. I did three things that faith is two weeks ago, and we're going to do three more things that faith is. And it is not any one of these things, but but hopefully it's at least all of these things, if not more. So we're talking about a huge concept, what is belief, and we're trying to get our minds around all of it. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is faith as reason, faith as action, and faith as actually an interpersonal relationship and it involves all of those things and not less than all of those things and so the first thing is this and i think this is probably something that's um hopefully complements and i'll talk about the veritas forum last night which was amazing and if you didn't see it you should watch the video um ken taylor was a professor here is a professor in the philosophy department here he's brilliant he's an atheist and he dialogued with N.T. Wright, which is one of the top New Testament scholars in the world. And they just talked about reason and the ethical life. And it was brilliant. And, it was, uh, and they were respectful. And they had both had good answers. But in, their, in the context of their debate, this issue came up of like, what about faith versus reason? And maybe you felt that in yourself. Maybe you felt it in the classroom. Maybe you've talked about it in a conversation that you, where you had this conversation. There's, there's religious faith. Well, there's belief, and then there's this other resource called reason. And so maybe in your conversation, you've been here where you maybe articulate some reasons why you believe God exists. You articulate some reasons. You use rationality uh, to explain why we can trust the Bible. And then at some point, our reasons run out, right? And it's kind of like you walked, you got some reasons, and then you kind of walked up to the edge of a cliff in the conversation, and maybe you've caught yourself like me, of saying like, well, and then from there on, you just kind of got to have faith. And, uh, and, and faith represents kind of taking this kind of leap out into the darkness of this world of ideas that you can't necessarily prove because you had a lot of provable points up to that point, And now you're just saying you just got to trust. And, and at this moment, this is what we all feel like in that conversation is that, okay, now all of a sudden it's no longer rational to trust in Jesus or to trust the Bible's account. And so you suspend reason because I don't know how to access it past this point. You suspend reason and you start using this new tool called faith. And I, and I suspect a lot of us have had similar conversations, maybe in different words, but where you felt that was what was going on. Reason, 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 reason. I exhausted it. New tool to access faith because I can't explain what's happening over here. And I actually think that's an unhelpful and incorrect understanding of the way faith and reason connect. And faith is actually not the opposite of reason. And if you look at Hebrews 11, especially verse 3, he says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That doesn't mean faith is not reasonable. There are a lot of things you believe that you cannot see that are actually totally reasonable. You can't see all the architecture that suspends this ceiling that you believe in. It's a small example, but... That's why faith and reason are not being couched against each other in verse 1 or or verse 2. And in fact, it's verse 3 we need to look at. By faith, we understand. By faith, what he's saying is, we know. You actually come into knowledge by faith. By faith, you actually trust evidence and come to understanding. And if you're at the Veritas Forum last night, and I'll, I'll try to catch anybody who wasn't there up to speed, but Professor Taylor, who, who's an atheist philosopher, I don't know, he wouldn't call himself an agnostic. I think he would call himself an atheist. I feel like 
that's what it would be. But um, he used really interesting language. I don't know if y'all picked up on this when he talked about faith and reason. Because as often the case, faith in religion was kind of cast, right, as this blind leap out into the darkness once you each reach the end of reason. But did y'all notice the way he talked about reason and how you use it? I don't know if anybody paid attention to his vocabulary, but he used this vocabulary, very specific words, very often. He constantly talked about believing in reason. Did y'all pick up on that? And trusting reason. In fact, and he knew what he was doing as well. He even, I think, and I think this is quite helpful, he actually even said the Enlightenment actually placed too much faith in reason. And see, the Bible never proposes blind faith uh, or unreasoned faith. And the writer of Hebrews is proposing what philosophers of science actually now today largely agree to, namely that before you can know anything, before you can know anything, you actually first have to trust data. Before you can know anything, you actually have to first believe the data. And we, I think, really unsophisticatedly think that in the field of science, there's no belief, that there's this kind of, there's naked data out there, and we place it into this reasonable structure, right? All all these events in the world, these repeatable experiments, uh, history, whatever it is, we put it in this kind of reasonable structure narrative, and then that's how you have a fact, you know, you kind of put it all together. And what's happening, and what's happened for the last century, and it's often the case, is the more people have thought about things, they often stumble into truths that the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years. And so philosophers who write on the scientific philosophy of knowledge, guys like Thomas Kuhn, actually say things like, faith actually precedes and grounds knowledge. Scientific knowledge is grounded by faith. And what he meant by this is this. You trust the people who went before you in your field. That's how you come in the bulk of your information, right? You trust your observations. You trust your reason. You trust your repeatable experiments. You trust your data. You trust your conclusions. So what is our relationship to facts, right? Any kind of fact about any kind of truth, scientific truth, philosophical truth, metaphysical truth. What is, how do we access those facts, or how do, we, how do they become true to us personally? We trust them. That is, we believe them. And so Peter's actually telling the church, in a very real sense, to be quite scientific and use reason well. When he says in 1 Peter 3, he's telling Christians, he's saying, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you, uh, who ask you to give the reason for your hope. And both actually, Dr. Wright and Dr. Taylor gave reasons for their beliefs last night. It was not just the Christian who was giving reasons for his belief. Dr. Taylor was very open about, I am giving reasons for what I believe. And the reason I believe in Jesus is precisely because when you read the Bible, it gives the most rational account of humanity and reality. Are there mysteries that we still don't quite understand? Absolutely. There are theological mysteries just like there are mysteries in physics and there are mysteries in math. And just like in all those areas, I was talking where I was talking to Mark last week about internal combustion engines that he and Julie are working on. And they're like, yeah, we basically still have very little idea what's happening in internal combustion engines. There's so much physics going on there. What we know is minuscule. Or, or you're just a bad physics. I don't know. <laughs> 
But uh, but uh, uh, a, a mathematician friend of mine who some of y'all met last night, who's this mathematician at Williams College visiting here, he says right now mathematicians think uh, that we know less than 1% of math. So we know very little about combustion. We know very little about math. Okay, do all of us drive cars even though we don't understand the physics of an internal combustion engine? Do we trust in cars? Have we made reasonable and confident decisions that we can use things we don't have full comprehensive knowledge of? Absolutely. All of your decisions in life are made with a tiny fraction of information from which you draw reasonable conclusions. And we treat religion as if it's this totally different thing where if I, if I don't fully comprehend the Trinity, I don't think I can go there. Right? If I can't wrap my mind around the entire Bible, if there, are, if there are still mysteries in religion, I can't believe it. The mysteries in physics are mind-blowing. The mysteries in chemistry and bi- neurobiology. The neurobiology is basically still magic at this point. Like, we have no idea what's happening in the brain. And yet, we actually make a lot of rational decisions with regard to those things that are very effective and proved to be true and helpful. Does that make sense? That, like, we, we use reason with a little bit of data, and what faith really is, is faith is this. It's reasoned confidence. A scientist has reasoned confidence. A writer has reasoned confidence. A thinker has reasoned confidence. An atheist has reasoned confidence. An an agnostic has reasoned confidence. And a Christian has reasoned confidence. And the way Wright said it last night, which I think is helpful, is faith is not something you look at. It's actually something that you look through in order to interpret the data in the world, in order to interpret your relationships and interpret physics and interpret beauty and interpret love. It's something you're supposed to look through the world in order to bring the world into focus. And what's, in a lot of times, the saddest Christians or the saddest believers are the people who are trying to look at their faith all the time and not using it to look through it at the world. And that would be like driving around looking at your windshield instead of through your windshield to see what's before you. So the question then is, how, okay, how do we exercise faith? What, what does it mean then to kind of start to operate with it? And so, I think looking at last night, we kind of have some examples. And again, I hope I'm catching up to speed if you weren't there. But, I'll, but Dr. Taylor gave us what I think is, and I really mean these words, I don't mean them in any kind of snarky way. Um, he gave the beautiful and wonderful hypocrisy of secular humanism. There's a, there's a hypocrisy, I think, that's present in secular humanism that's awesome and should remain. And what I mean by that is this. He actually said, these are his words. I, took, I was on my iPhone taking notes all night, and I was paranoid that people thought I was texting, but I was actually taking notes. But he actually said, I'm not sure that human rights actually exist. When they talked about human rights, if y'all remember this, he was clear and he was intellectually honest in that regard. He was like, I'm not sure they actually exist, that, that human dignity is a real thing embedded, embedded within the fabric of reality. Morality is not embedded in creation. It's just kind of this human construct. And by implication, right, and good and evil don't intrinsically exist. And he started the night by saying, what we are as humans are little tiny specks that aren't important. Those were his first words. But if you were there, you might have noticed how often, uh, all throughout the night, he talked about the importance of human dignity. 
And he actually begged the audience at the end to embark on this human experience of showing equal dignity to each other. And he actually used an interesting word several times at the end of his talk. I don't know if you all paid, heard this either. He kept talking about redeeming the world. What he did is he, lo- he laid this moral burden of dignifying humanity. What you've got to do as a person is dignify and respect people. All kinds of people. He laid that burden on us while admitting there's no objective reason to do it. Because as he said at the beginning, we're just small, unimportant specks. Now, there's some of our data we gathered. Let's reason through it. Does the case for inherent human dignity and worth square with the notion that we are nothing? In other words, he's saying you should treat everybody with dignity, even though dignity is not a real thing and human value and worth doesn't exist. And of course it doesn't square. Feels right? There's a, there's a hypocrisy within those thoughts. On the other hand, what is the Christian explanation of the same data? The data that N.T. Wright and Ken Taylor both agreed to. We've got to respect people. Right? And this is what Wright offered. What is, the, what is what he offered? This is the Christian explanation. And this is what he said. Moses said, what we are, the reason that why when you look at another person, something happens. You can't explain it, but you know that person is not a chair or a grasshopper or a tree. That There's a spark there. Or there's something meaningful there that requires a different amount of respect. And Taylor and Wright both agreed to that, that something happens that necessitates respect. But Taylor says, but there's actually not a basis for that. But he continues to operate along the line. Well, the biblical account is because you're imbued with the fingerprint of God, that we're made in His image, which means we reflect His glory. We're little self-portraits of Him. And so the reason humanity... So the reason you cry when sad things happen is because beauty does exist. Because a human being abused is a truly evil thing because there is divine beauty pressed into the nature of every human. Christian or not, it has nothing to do with whether or not you're a Christian. My question to you is this, who then holds the reasonable position? The secular human who, humanist who begs for human rights but denies that they actually exist or the theologian who begs for human rights because God has imbued every human with dignity and worth? And, and Professor Taylor begged us and begged us again to redeem the world, and he had no reason why. And he also proffered that there was no hope that if we worked hard at that, we could do it. But he said, but we've got to do it, we've got to do it, we've got to do it. And both the speakers recognized, yeah, we do need to do it, but we're all going to mess it up all the time. Right? And Taylor both admitted that. And so Taylor gave us a groundless imperative, respect each other, and what he knows is an impossible hope. So that we can create what he said is to make this world a home that's no longer racked by evil. So he gave us an imperative that's not grounded in anything for a hope that is not sure. In fact, he guarantees it won't happen. Here's what Dr. Wright offered us. He offered us Jesus. You are made and you are imprinted and everybody on this campus is imprinted with a spark of divine glory, with the image of God. And this world and ourselves have been mucked up by our own sin, but we're all longing for redemption and we're admitting our powerlessness and God has come in the person of Jesus to redeem His people and call them into His work of which the historical event of the resurrection is the proof that God is making all things new again. God has already conquered death in one person and Jesus, we're told, is the first fruits from the dead. And we are given a rooted imperative love your neighbor rooted in in the fact that your neighbor is God's special creation 
And we're given that imperative with a divine guaranteed hope because in so doing and in bringing Christ to your neighbor, you're participating in the fact that God is making all things new. And if you're not sure that he is making all things new, look back at the resurrection. That's where he started. My question is, which one of those stories makes better sense of the data? And here's what happens. You start processing the data. What happens is you see that by faith, we start to understand. This is what C.S. Lewis says. I believe in Christianity the way I believe the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but also by it I see everything else. Faith is the exercise of reason, not the opposite of reason. That's the first point. That's the longest one. But the second thing is this. Faith is actionable. It's not just the exercise of reason. It's also actionable. And and some of y'all might be familiar with those frustrating passages in James 2. I didn't read them. But James is writing in his letter and he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And he goes on to explain the reason that you can know Abraham had faith was by what he did. And that's why he goes and James says, and then, so any kind of faith that is not attended to or followed by works is dead faith or not saving faith or not faith in Jesus. And this is an important point to get right and to get the order right. Order is everything here. Works, what James means by works, living the virtuous life of a Christ follower, it's not the mechanism by which you earn favor with God. However, the practices of Christian living are what reveal that you trust in God. And that distinction between those two statements is crucial. The biblical imagery is really helpful here. Works... Christian character, practices, repentance, lifestyle, they're called fruit. And that imagery is helpful. Because on a tree, the fruit is not the source of life. The roots are. The fruit is what reveals that there's life at the root. And that order is the difference between life and death. Because so many of us can take and think that what it means to be a Christian, what it means, the way we earn God's favor, is by work. But actually what, what, what James is telling us is the way you actually know you have freely received God's favor is by virtue of fruit. So works are not the source of saving faith, they're the evidence of saving faith. And here's in, James is making that point, I show you my faith by what I do. And there's a story, I've heard this is a sermon illustration, maybe you've heard it before, every now and then the preacher shamefully uses an illustration that's wildly popular. This is that moment, allow me some self-loathing. But um, there's this kind of story in college lore uh, about a public speaking class in which the assignment in the class was you have to make a persuasive argument and drive it home in a powerful way. And that's what the assignment was. And so a student chose to explain the physics of a pendulum and about how whatever point you release the pendulum from, it cannot rise back again to that point when it swings back because gravity pulls energy out. I don't understand it all. Maybe the physics people, maybe we don't understand pendulums either. I don't know. But, right, we all know that principle. You drop a, a weighted pendulum, it swings across, and it will not rise back again to that point. It will rise back to a lower point. He demonstrates this on a two-foot string with a small weight, right? Talks about the laws of physics. 
And then what he does is over the course of his lectures, he backs up and he has reveals that in the lecture hall he suspended a 100-pound weight from four parachute cords with 500-pound tests, and he asks for a volunteer to come and believe the laws of physics. And so what he does is somebody comes down and says, you know, is willing to be the volunteer, so he pulls the weight back and holds it right in front of the person's nose and drops the pendulum. And when the pendulum swings back, the person does what probably a lot of us would do, which is they step out of the way. And then the, the speaker turns into the class and asks, does he believe the laws of physics? And the answer is no. He was shown the laws of physics. He was reasoned through the laws of physics. But his actions betrayed that he did not still trust the laws of physics. Right? And in a lot of ways, we say we believe certain things. And I was talking with somebody last week, and they used really helpful categories. We have what he said, I have these doctrinal beliefs, these things I say I believe all the time. And they're kind of out there up front, and they come out of my mouth a lot. But then when I look at my life, I realize there's this other set of real beliefs called what he calls operational beliefs. And that's who I truly am. And if you looked at my actions, you would say, these are the beliefs that really drive me. And what do we do about that disparity? Right? Because faith is far from some internal exercise of agreeing with an idea. Faith acts. It does things. It involves your hands and your feet and your mouth and your bank account and your calendar. Right? It does things. And James actually says this in, 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 earlier in his letter. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled. If you want to know what religion is that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, what God approves of, it's this. Visiting orphans and widows and keeping one un- oneself unstained. James is saying, hey, the way you identify someone whose heart is given over to Jesus is they start to act like Him. Namely, they have hearts of compassion for the outsider, for the alienated, for the lonely, and for the needy, and for the hurting. And the reason why is because that's who we are and Jesus came to us. Faith does stuff. And this point is troubling. It's troubling to me. I suspect it's troubling for a lot of you because it reveals a lot of hypocrisy in us. Because we all are good at doctrinal beliefs. Here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. Here's what I'm saying all the time. And we're terrified of being honest about our operational beliefs. Of actually looking at what we do and say and think. And, and, and actually letting what we do and say and think reveal to us what we truly believe. Because it exposes us. Some of us are justifying behavior that we know God speaks clearly against. We use foolish logic to do whatever we want. Some of us have hearts hardened toward the outsider. Some of us are anything but generous. We're far from being a giver. We're a taker. And all of us are just really fascinated with ourselves and not with anybody else. And if faith is revealed by its action, what is a room full of Christian hypocrites supposed to do with that? And I think what we've got to do is we've got to start with the first things of faith again. And on October 31st, 1517, in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door there. And that's what started the Reformation, if you're familiar with church history. And the very first, the 95 Theses were his 95 problems with the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And the first one was the heartbeat of everything he did. That first thesis sparked the Reformation, changed Western history forever, right? This is what his first thesis was. 
When the Lord Jesus gave the command to repent, He meant for the whole life of the Christian to be one of repentance. I say that to make this point. The first act of faith is repentance. Christians are not hypocrites if they misbehave. That's a misunderstanding. The Bible is full of understanding that this life is the life of faith is hard work. The life of being transformed by the gospel is hard work. It is a long process. It's a lifelong process of being transformed by grace. And there is messiness in the lives of Christians. Can't read the Bible and come to any other conclusion than seeing that Christians misbehave a ton. The deadly Christian hypocrisy is not misbehaving. The deadly Christian hypocrisy is the refusal to repent. And when you read the Gospels, you see it's not the immoral people, the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes, that Jesus can't abide. Those are not the people that offend and frustrate Jesus. The immoral people understand more clearly in Jesus what they need, and they look at Him, and they're like, ah, there's cleansing in this man. The faithless people are not the immoral people. The faithless people are the unrepentant people. The people who think they're better than others and let their sense of superiority separate themselves from others and arrogantly assume, I have the proper life and I have the proper heart that God wanted from me. Therefore, I don't need much of Jesus. That's what faith without works is. That's what empty faith is. That's what dead faith is. The first mark of true faithful action is repentance. How would they actually say the primary mark throughout the life of a Christian of faith is repentance? And it's a big, confusing biblical word, but simplified in very literal terms, the Greek word is metanoia. It's a turning of the mind. That's what repentance is. And what it means is you look at your life, and you look at your heart, and you realize all of this, all of me, has been about putting together a life's resume so I can feel okay about myself, so I can avoid essentially hating myself. And it hasn't worked out yet. And the next stage that you think is going to get you over self-loathing is not going to work either. And repentance is, I have not been able to clean myself and feel okay. And so you turn from that self-salvation project and you turn to Jesus and you say, can you cleanse me? And the cross is His profound, loving, and gracious answer, yes, yes. And the kind of faith that acts... In that manner, who understands, I was lost, but now I'm found, and I was blind, but now I see. What happens in the life of that kind of person, having been saved from their self-salvation project, they start to love outsiders. They are free in a profound way from all the anxiety of self-salvation that kills us all the time. And we're going to actually talk about that next week. I'm going to go on tonight. Our point is simply this. Faith acts, and it ends with repentance. Next week, we're going to talk about how then do we begin to change. But the foremost act in faith is repentance. And repentance is the easiest and the hardest thing in the world at the same time. Last point. Faith is reasonable. Faith is actionable. Lastly, faith is personal. The Bible is not asking you to believe a story or an account or an explanation or an argument. That's part of it. There are elements of that. But it's not an impersonal account of history concluded with a question of, so do you believe this? It's not a philosophical argument concluded with a question like, so do you believe this? But what the writer of Hebrews tells us about faith is this. And this is what he says in, uh, in 
chapter 12, when he kind of concludes his big passage on faith. So he calls Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. The origin of our faith is not an argument we agreed to. The origin of our faith is the person of Jesus. God is asking you to trust Him. And what does it mean that Jesus is the author? How is, that, how is it that our faith starts in Him? And, in, in, in it, we're told in the preceding couple of words, by looking to Him. And I made this point last quarter, and the writer of Hebrews is just explaining it further. Faith is not something, this is really the big thing I want you to get. It's not something you internally manufacture and apply to some external story. Like I have these kind of faith stores, and I'm going to choose the right story to apply them to, and that's how I'm kind of going to glue myself to this story. That's not what faith is. Faith is something that an external object generates inside of you. So I talked about this briefly last quarter. How do you trust a plane? How do you come to trust that you will safely fly in a plane? The way you come to trust a plane is not by drumming up optimistic kind of psycho-emotional energy. I believe, I believe, I believe. Right? We've all tried that in different areas of life and it hasn't worked. Right? Athletes, we try this all the time. Right? And you know what? There are a lot of people who said, I believe, I believe, I believe, and lost. Right? That's not faith. It doesn't do anything. You know, um, if you need it to get psyched up, that's fine. But don't think it's like the tool for winning. But that kind of thinking about faith is actually what gets people into trouble, especially when they try to apply it to religion, when they don't examine the object they're going to trust in instead, and instead think, if I just believe really hard, it's going to be true. The way you end up trusting an airplane that it's going to hold together and fly you safely is by looking at its stability and its complexity and its record and evidences of its flight and story of its past successes. In other words, you trust an aircraft. Your trust in an aircraft actually originates in the plane itself. You look at it and examine it and say, that's safe. You know what happened? That plane created faith in you. Trust in Christ is looking at Him and seeing that His love is so pure and it's so changeless and the stories of His faithlessness and His grace, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of resurrection, the reality of beauty and love and justice. The only hope there is at redemption is in Jesus. And you look at Jesus long enough and you start to realize this is the only way it can be. This is the only way it can be. There can't be any other way. So you don't start by trusting a story or trusting an account. Christian faith is personal. What you start is you start to trust a person. Faith is a conversation. And you trust Jesus not because you're strong and resilient and you're somebody of strong faith and positive emotional energy. And in fact, it's actually quite the opposite. You came to the end of your strength and resilience and you saw He's strong when I wasn't. And He's resilient because I'm not. And his question, Jesus' question to you, is not, do you believe this? He's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust that I forgive? Do you trust that my love is free? Do you trust that in me you are safe? And last night, N.T. Wright, one helpful comment he made about faith is this. He said, he contrasted with our faulty idea that it's the energy we drum up within ourselves to convince ourselves something is true. And he said, the Jewish and the Christian biblical notion of faith is that our faith and God's faithfulness are wrapped up in each other. 
and you can't really separate it. That we have faith because He is faithful. That our faith is rooted in, authored by, and built up or perfected by His faithfulness. And so if you want to have strong faith, rest in the faithfulness of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about the image of people on a climbing rope. Someone who jumps confidently out knowing it's going to hold them and someone who edges off the platform. And we said, they are both held by the rope. And they are both safe because of the strength of the rope and not because of the, the strength of their, uh, their faith, right? But how do you get from timidly walking off the platform to jumping off? The rope holds people just the same, but how do you get there if you want to get there? This is how you get there. You've got to edge off the first time. It is scary. And you've got to edge off. And you've got to edge off the second time. And you've got to edge off the third time. And then the fourth time, maybe you hop off a little bit. And what happens is you keep doing it over and over again. Guess what happens? The rope holds you every time. You are still safe. But you keep trusting in that rope. What happens is you grow more confident. It changes who you are. The rope starts working on you and changing you. God is not just the author of our faith. He's not, the one in, he's not just the one in whom we are safe. He is also the one who grows our faith. So this is what it means for us. If you're, well, what does it look like for me to edge off the platform? Here's what it looks like. Confess sin to one another so you may be healed. Not just in here, but to someone else. These are the words from James. Con- confess sin to one another so that you can hear the verdict of Jesus. Here's another one. Rest for a day. Once a week. See what happens. It'll be terrifying at first. See what happens. See if you can trust God with a day. And also, rest is not this moral burden of like, oh, you need to rest or else. He's saying like, oh my gosh, y'all, chill out. That's, what, that's how y'all need to read that commandment. Your life is not your work. And it will kill you if you think it is. Stop obsessing with our own happiness. Give our time and energy at the expense of Maybe our agenda, maybe even our dreams. Give those things up in order to love someone who's difficult. Put away sexual immorality. Tell the truth. Drink responsibly. Stop playing the facade that we all play. Pray. Meditate on the promises of God. These are not rules that you do so God won't arrest you. He is saying, this is the way everlasting. This is the flourishing life. This is virtue and this is love. Here's his call to you. Test him and see if he's faithful. Edge off the platform. Try one or all of those things and see if you're safe in Jesus. And what will happen is you'll edge off that platform. You know what you'll do? You'll rest for a day. You'll tell the truth. You'll confess sin. You'll scoot off that. And it's going to feel terrifying when you do it. But you're going to find out Jesus holds you. And you know what that means? The next time you do it, you're going to be a little less terrified. You're going to have a little bit more trust in Jesus. And you know what? He's going to hold you the first time when you're scared to death. And He's going to hold you when you're 75 on your deathbed. And you're confident because you've been testing that rope your entire life. But don't you want to get to the place where you're not afraid anymore? Last night, just real brief closing comment. Scotty asked Ken Taylor and N.T. Wright what it would take to change their minds. It was a great closing question. And he asked Ken Taylor, he said, what would it take for you um, to kind of believe this Christian story or to believe in religion? 
And I don't know if y'all paid attention to this, but his language, something jumped out of his mouth immediately. And I think it actually happened so fastly, so quickly. I wonder, I wonder if he would have reworded it. But it was clearly an emotional answer. Um, and, and he answered so quickly that he actually did back up for a moment and try to give a more sophisticated answer. But do y'all, does anybody remember what he said when Scotty said, what would it take for you to change your belief? What was the first thing he said? He goes, a revelation. I would need a revelation. What he just articulated was a biblical and Christian, not enlightenment, not postmodern, not scientific, but a biblical view of knowledge. That was perfect biblical doctrine of knowledge that Ken Taylor said last night. And a revelation, God knowing, that's exactly what we need to believe. We need a revelation. God and Ken Taylor are on the same page. And, it, and for that reason, that's exactly what God has provided. Uh, a 3,000-year-old story right, took place across dozens and dozens of authors, thousands and thousands of years, dozens of cultures, different languages, and it all tells one story. Okay, that's remarkable. Every other religious text is written by one or two authors at the same time. We're talking about 2,500 years of authors all telling one story. And it tells one story of God's revelatory, climactic event, of God stepping into history and confirming the belief and the hope that Ken Taylor expressed last night that humanity is imbued with dignity and that we are broken and that we can't fix it. But everything is in us screaming for redemption. And in Jesus, we have the revealed character and we have the revealed love of God. And there's no more sufficient revelation than that. Let's pray.